welcome back to The New Disruptors, a podcast that asks, how do we create meaningful work in a time of turmoil? I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, and thank you for tuning in. This is the first episode of the new series of The New Disruptors, brought to you by the wonderful people who became backers during a Kickstarter campaign in June. I thank you all. I have some detail about supporting the show before I get to this episode's guest, Spike Trotman, and I've put the start of the interview in a chapter mark if you want to skip ahead. The crowdfunding campaign raised funds to produce 12 episodes, about one a month for the next year, and I'll be mixing in some travel and at least one live event in Seattle as well. With those first 12 episodes secured, I'm switching to a rolling funding model. So I'll be looking for podcast sponsors, of course, but as I noted in the crowdfunding campaign, you have to have a huge listenership these days to bring in money at the scale I need to produce more episodes and more live shows or in-person tapings. So I'm providing two ways for people who listen to the show to help fund more episodes. That's both additional episodes during this next year and other events that I might be able to add. But also, with enough recurring funding, I should be able to continue to produce the show indefinitely after July 2019. That's kind of the long-term goal, is that we roll this along and it just becomes something that funds itself over time, like it did before. I've started a Patreon campaign that you can find at patreon.com slash new underscore disruptors. Note that underscore. Someone squatted on the old Patreon campaign name, so that's new underscore disruptors, patreon.com slash new underscore disruptors. You can also find links at newdisrupt.org, our longtime website. You can become a patron at Patreon starting at $1 a month. At $3 a month, you get the same benefits as the insider level that I set up during the crowdfunding campaign. I'll explain that in a moment. And at $10 a month, you get the disruptor benefits. You can find all these details, of course, at the Patreon site. I've also set up a separate thing that I think is, I don't know if it's unique, but I, I'm going to try it. It's a membership store. It's at newdisrupt.org support. When you go there, you can purchase a yearly membership just as if it were during the Kickstarter campaign. Now, of course, I keep a greater percentage of that because I'm only paying credit card processing fees. It's a digital service. And so you can buy a $10 support level, $25 as an insider, and $100 as a disruptor. So here's how the benefits work. I'm trying to provide something that's interesting and useful for people who really would like to support the show and get something more out of it. So at the insider level, that's a $25 in the Kickstarter campaign, a $25 membership at newdisrupt.org, or $3 a month at Patreon, you'll get access to the private discourse discussion forum that I've set up. This lets you have conversations about the topics of the podcast and other questions about being an independent creator. I'll be involved there and I'll invite guests of the show to join anyone else I can think who will add to the discussion. You'll also get early information about and free tickets to live events for those that have a charge associated or you'll get early tickets for those who don't. And you'll also get access to live streams and other media that I release. Some of that will be exclusive to patrons. At the $100 level per year or at $10 a month on Patreon, people who are disruptors get all that plus an enamel New Disruptors logo pin, uh, which I is arriving any moment now as I'm recording this intro, and me thanking you by name on an episode during the coming 12 months. For those choosing Patreon, please read the details about when the pin gets sent out during your patronage period. With your help, I can commit to increasing the number of episodes, do more live events, and keep the show running for more than a year. And let me say too, your moral support counts. There are many demands on your money right now, and many are much more philanthropic and important in nature than this podcast. I appreciate everyone who asked me to bring back the new disruptors. You made it happen, and everyone who listens. Thank you so much for your support. And now, on to my interview with Spike Trotman in episode 100.
In this inaugural episode number 100, the return of the podcast to regular production, I'm pleased as punch to have Spike Trotman as my guest. Spike founded Iron Circus Comics in 2007, and it's risen through her hard work and excellent curatorship to become the Chicago area's leading comics publisher. A cartoonist and writer herself with a long-running series, Spike has raised over a million dollars through Kickstarter across more than a dozen projects and created a sustainable and repeatable funding method. You can even read her book on kickstarting comics to get your own set of advice from uh, from her experience. She's also part of Kickstarter's Drip. Uh, Spike, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. I am uh, I'm so excited to have you. Because when I look at what you've accomplished, it makes me just kind of want to scream and shout because it <laughs> is, uh, I'm not even involved in comics, really. I know some comics, your cartoonists have been published by you, but um, it's so tr- traditionally been so hard for cartoonists to control their own work and to make a living from it. I wonder, how have you tried to change this equation for yourself and for the cartoonists you work with? Oh, God. Well, the primary issue that I've always had to deal with, like from the beginning of my career, I got into comics, like one of the perpetual sort of things, especially in my youth in comics, was that everyone thought that the industry as a whole in North America had like maybe 10 years left and that it was just going to collapse in on itself and it was going to be over. You know, when I when I was getting into comics, that was shortly after Marvel declared bankruptcy. So <laughs> it was it was rough times. And there was sort of this genuine, genuine belief that we were on borrowed time and nothing mattered. And that kind of filtered into the small press in a really interesting way, because while there are small press publishers that have been around for a long, long time, I'm talking like Fantagraphics and stuff. They've been around for decades and decades. There was so little money in the small press at sort of the end of this at the turn of the century i guess you could say that there was like the concept of the creator that was self-supporting entirely and exclusively off of their comics work in the small press you could count those people on one hand like the best you could hope for was your small press comics would get noticed in some capacity by an industry that did have money like TV or film, and then maybe you could option it, and then maybe you could escape. Even the like the preeminent mainstream writers, the folks who were writing for Kate books, like Marvel, DC, Image, even those folks, nowadays, most of them, they're pretty well established in prose. And I'm talking about folks like Neil Gaiman and stuff. Oh, uh, yeah. Warren Ellis, Alan Moore, a lot of mm. the sort of top flight comics writers moved to prose because at the end of the day they wanted to write something they owned which they couldn't do at marvel and dc and they wanted to write something that was going to have some kind of return something that wasn't like piecework something that wasn't a page rate and if that's how grim it was in the mainstream you have to imagine how bad it was in the small press and that is the environment I decided to, to jump into because I'm, I'm just so smart. You know, I decided, oh, this doomed industry is the one for me because, you know, I love comics with all my heart. But the one thing that was really interesting when I was just getting into the scene was sort of the Internet. This this Internet thing was happening. Ooh, let's check this out. And wow, now I can I can get my comics to people who might want to read it without getting by an editor or getting by someone who's going to look at my work and go, hmm, I don't know if I could sell this to the kind of person who usually walks into your average American comic shop. See, that was like my main issue. I was writing stuff that wasn't really aimed at or prioritizing what people consider sort of the average comics reader for good or for ill. And I didn't have any interest in adapting my work to sort of appeal to that 
what what is the demographic? It's something like the eighteen to forty nine year old white cis male, <laughs> right? You know, right. like that. That's who was reading the Kate books that were at the time lining comic shops. And what I wrote, they weren't particularly interested in on Moss. Certainly not enough for a publisher to consider <laughs> taking me on. So when this whole idea of web comics came about, I was like, oh wow, cool. You know, I can circumnavigate. No gatekeepers, great. And it worked on a really interesting scale for me in that if I scraped and I just, you know, worked myself to the bone and I I didn't take weekends and I was having 16-hour days, if I did that, I could make <laughs> maybe $14,000 a year. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. And like to me, though, that was like, oh, my God, you know, if this if, if this can happen on this scale, like surely I can, I can scale this up and I can do better because now I've got something, I've got a foundation. It's not nothing. Surely we can go on from here. And again, that was when I was very young, you know, that's back when you can sleep in the bathtub, you know, and, and sleep to the <laughs> sleep five to a room at the motel next to the convention and eat out of the Seven Eleven on the corner, three meals a day. And if you come away from the show with a $200 profit, you know, you're king of the world. The good so old days. Was, <laughs> <laughs> like that was my early and mid twenties. Like that whole scene, that was my early mid twenties. And I was really proud because I was making something for myself and I was connecting directly with my readers and I wasn't having to get anybody's sort of editorial approval to show them what I was making. So that was exciting and empowering and sort of a proof of concept for me because there would be a lot of folks who would argue, oh, well, what you make, no one wants. And that's why it's not in comic shops. Yeah. But like the American comic scene is so complicated and fraught with like just like decades and decades before my birth, you know, comics had shrunk down. They had, they had sort of shed off so many genres that I might have potentially, who knows, worked in like no horror, no true crime, no um, Millie the model. Well, I remember there was, I don't think it was a joke, but is that people would go to adult bookstores to get interesting comics because they were the only places that would yeah. stock stuff that was, you know, the alternative. I mean, they were, you know, go to head shops, you go to other places that were sort of demi monde to get <laughs> to get stuff that by today's standards would seem not necessarily tame, but it wouldn't be anywhere near the edge, but you couldn't get it in a comic book store. Absolutely. The 70s and sort of like the 60s and 70s, I should say, rather, starting in the 60s comics with an x at the end so instead of ending in a mm -hmm. cs comics with an x that was to denote those comics that used to have a meaning that didn't used to just be <laughs> an aesthetic stylistic thing uh that was used to denote these comics are not approved by the comics code authority these comics are subversive these comics are you know against the the code of decency that comics as an industry has agreed to but this sets the stage for where you're coming in because i remember um in you know starting in the late 90s you'd start to see people posting uh you know i wrote some stories for the new york times in the late 90s about web comics and cartoonists doing mainstream work you know particularly strip cartoonists in newspapers who they kind of i think they saw the writing on the wall that newspapers were declining so there was this kind of shift it wasn't wholesale online but it was everyone was like how do i play this out until how do i ride this down uh for the for some of the newspaper folks but yeah. they're also like well i'm gonna get my i'll see if my syndicate or the newspapers will let me put my email address or my website in there so they could build a new audience yeah. or the web comics people you know, i was writing in the late 90s and there were all these people trying really interesting things because as you say there were no restrictions right it's online you could build this fresh audience and try new things but that um 
I think by the early 2000s, it felt like there wasn't still a revenue pipe for most people, but there was an, there were an enormous amount of new voices being heard um, because all the other markets had kind of closed down to them. And you still had people who were creative and wanted to do something and they, they had a place to yeah. post it. For. One of the things that I, I talk about a lot is um, I recommend you folks see a documentary called E-Dreams. OK, it's about a internet Ooh. startup called Cosmo.com, which was a great idea. That simply, oh God, I, I still have Cosmo. their refrigerator magnets. They were a great idea, but the thing is, they were great too soon. If they had launched 10 years later, oh, yeah. they would be peapod sized by now, no problem. But the problem is, people weren't quite ready for, you know, within an hour internet based delivery. I have at least three apps on my phone now that will do that. But back in the day, Cosmo was just too early. People weren't ready. And that's kind of how the first five, six, seven years of webcomics really felt to me because people were trying everything. There were no rules. There was no roadmap. There was no Kickstarter. There was no Patreon. There was no... Pay- I mean, PayPal existed. I mean, yeah. there's like oh, people yeah. tried tip jars, but even PayPal, not a lot of people are in PayPal, yeah. actually. And you're like, how do, you know, how do you get a buck from somebody? You might be able to get 20 bucks from them. They might send you a check even in like yeah. 2001. But could you get, you know, like 50 cents from someone was impossible. Oh, absolutely. There were people... I remember Scott McCloud, one of my favorite cartoonists, he talked about this idea called microtransactions. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And people were like, that's ridiculous. No one will ever... <laughs> give anyone a dollar for something on the internet oh my gosh yeah. i remember those days right. well there were, and there were a lot of people trying microtransactions but yeah. the problem was microtransactions were expensive unless you had like a billion of them and at a million trans you know some of the places were they weren't successful i would say in the end like cy- there's cyber cash and yeah all these outfits and you probably tried some of them i know oh, God, i did yeah and but you know and you, so you got money here and there money would come in you'd be this is great but they'd be like well you know it turns out microtransactions you know, it costs us 30 cents to process a nickel. So probably not going to be in business much longer. Yeah. And it's like, like I said, there were no rules. And I think that's something that's really lost on folks kind of setting Mm -hmm. into the world of comics today, because quite frankly, there, there's a path to follow. It's you graduate school, be it high school or, or college. And you decide, okay, I'm going to make a comic. This is, these are the places I can put it. This is how I monetize it in the first year. Once I have enough for a book, I go here. Once I have the book printed, I start going to these shows and then I build from there. That didn't even exist. No one knew what to do. This is like the Lucy Bellwood model who, uh, she, uh, you know, <laughs> she, she did a, she just, we did a podcast. She's on, been on her book tour, uh, for hundred demon dialogues. And so we did a, a, a beta of the reboot of this podcast and she came in at exactly that right time. She's in yeah. her late twenties and she graduated college at a Kickstarter to fund her college graduation or you know senior project and then went right into that you know everything was prepared not, I mean she's extremely talented oh, yeah. and hardworking but the financial path if the financial components are in place for someone with those abilities the willingness to build yeah. an audience and th- that's today right that's you know since 2015 or 2012 or something they started to kick into place but yeah 2001 what was there nothing yeah exactly a lot of interest though. I mean all these people were doing there's so much work being produced and a number of those people um, like Dave Kellett and so forth uh, Rich Stevens people are still around I love Rich oh oh god Rich is (laughs) Rich texted me this morning (laughs) he's i mean i think he's he's doing better than ever and he's doing more interesting different physical work now material the folks who were experimenting in those early years including you a lot of folks persisted and pushed through that hard period in which there were essentially there was very little way to turn it into money right no resources no money no resources basically if you were going to figure out how to monetize your comic you did it on your own like of course you talked to other cartoonists and you watched other cartoonists and you 
watched for what worked and what didn't work. But at the end of the day, you had to figure out how to take sort of the collected knowledge of folks trying to make it out here, you know, in all caps, and tried to mold it around the audience you'd built. Like, I have a friend named Randy Milholland, and he did a comic called Something Positive. And what he did one day out of nowhere is he just posted on his website, you folks keep asking me to update the comic regularly, and I keep telling you I have a day job. (laughs) So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put up a, a meter, a goal meter on my website. And it's going to contain what I make in a year. And if you can PayPal me, everyone who reads this comic collectively, what I make in a year, I'll quit my day job and dedicate myself to the comic. And it worked. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, you know, Q, 15 million copycats. But what I did was, of course, it was a much, much less ambitious version of that where I had a tip jar on my site and I said, for every $200 that goes in the tip jar, I will update my comic an extra day that week. It normally updated three times a week. I will update it four times a week for every extra $200. And, you know, the first day I launched that, I made $600 and my mind was blown. (laughs) Like, oh my God, I can figure this out. I can make money. And sort of leading into Kickstarter, one of the reasons I was such an early adopter and I had absolutely no qualms about it is because... I and a lot of other cartoonists had already been doing essentially that for years. We didn't call it crowdfunding because we didn't have that word. But what we would do when the time came to print a book, which we would then take around the convention circuit for the next two or three years and sell, um, is we'd get a quote from a printer and then we'd tell our audiences, you know, in newsletters or on the website or whatever, hey, this is what it'll cost me to print this in book form. Here's my PayPal address please PayPal me the cover price plus, gosh, I don't know, $5 shipping. (laughs) And I will every single day update a little graphic on my website that says how much money I have and how much money I need. And of course, there was a lot of trust involved there. You had to trust that I was telling the truth. I had this amount of money. You had to trust whoever gave you the money in PayPal wouldn't then report you for fraud because PayPal had very specific rules about how much time can elapse between someone giving you money and oh, you giving them you a did, product. Or you did too well with PayPal and they'd freeze your account because you suddenly got yeah. $2,000. They're like, oh, whoa, this must all be fraud. So we're going to freeze it for six months. For exactly. You. That has happened. Multiple cartoonists had their accounts frozen. Multiple cartoonists only got their accounts back <sighs> years later, literal years. And in a lot of ways, you're, you're taking your life in your hands when you when you did that but it was the only option we had and when kickstarter came along in 2009 i remember thinking wow this is exactly what we're already doing except it's transparent and automatic oh yeah can i back up just one second is i feel like there was this period like 2005 ish Mm -hmm. i don't know what happened in that Mm -hmm. year but i feel a lot of the folks i talked to uh in the last few years who kind of who were working in that era between 2005 and 2009 it feels like there was this conceptual gelling so people in a lot of different artistic endeavors including you know they're making physical stuff or comics or music you'd gotten a little bit of a model together right you had that thing where you're like i need to do this thing yeah i want to raise this money people would give you money and trust it and kickstarter seemed to arise and i I know the founders their you know founding mythology is kind of that they're like well we want to do a concert how do we do it well let's raise money for the concert ahead of time so we have the money you know sell the tickets and it it all seemed to arise at once so when kickstarter came into existence it wasn't like well this doesn't make any sense to me right there were thousands of us going oh oh yeah yeah it's one place and as long as we trust this one company to do it right we don't have to reinvent the wheel for every project yeah the automation was the real key like that was Kickstarter's killer app, not the idea that, oh gosh, we can crowdfund. What what a concept, but oh, if I mm-hmm. use this site, 
everyone will see everything happening automatically. And that way, you know, the, the process is so much neater and cleaner and more compact. And then when the project is over, you know, it gets a, a nice little sheet of information gets spit <laughs> out into my lap and it'll be so much easier to fulfill. Somebody else charges all the cards for me. It's awesome. <laughs> it's great. It's wonderful. And I always sort of could not understand the folks who were instantly distrustful of it because it seems so obvious and perfect to me. And I remember early on, I'm like, I I just don't see how you don't understand this is going to be really big. Like, it seems really obvious to me this is going to be a huge deal. Oh, I got on the Kickstarter writing beat, too. I kept telling every editor I had, I'm like, I wrote a bunch. I pitched a lot. Not everybody was that interested. I wrote as many articles mm-hmm. as I could about it. It was that you had suddenly had thousands of people able to change their lives in little or big oh, yeah. ways, which was, and, and it wasn't slowing down. It still hasn't really slowed down that much 10 years no, later. No, not really, yeah. no. <laughs> no, it's actually, in a lot of ways, it's very unique in the comics industry because of the way comics is set up where it's an extremely small industry. I know a lot of industries love to say that about themselves, but no comics really is a very small industry and has a small comparatively to prose and television and film has a very small readership fan base, people who are distinctly interested in comics. And as a result, there's not a lot of money to throw around and the main sort of the main hurdle for people to overcome when we were doing it traditionally, which was approaching established publishers is the editors can say, could say to us, well, you know, I don't, I just, I just don't think that this is something people who read mm-hmm. comics want. Like that was the cutoff point. Just you could, if, if an editor decided there, no one would buy your book, then there was nothing you could really say. However, if you turn around and you go to Kickstarter and you make $50,000, publishing the book yourself suddenly that argument doesn't hold water anymore (laughs) and like the fact that i put books on kickstarter and i've made a million dollars predominantly publishing books that i have had people assure me no one wants has been incredibly satisfying i want to sidebar out of the chronology for a second here because this is the thing that this is one of the reasons i'm so excited to talk to you is because i mean it's not you know i don't want to turn you into a story of of uh fighting and perseverance and all that because that's not your personality it's not how clearly how you approach the world (laughs) but it's it seems to me you've had people saying no to you for like 15 years over and ago no it's not going to work no 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 and you persevered but the funny thing is i saw in a recent interview you gave that (laughs) kind of with this last with a daniel corsetto Kickstarter we'll talk about because I think that was so mm-hmm. massive, although not that much bigger, in fact, than a, your previous top one. Um, you have people, it seemed <laughs> like you have people now going, oh, wait a minute, she knows what she's doing. It only took you, you know, 10 years to convince them, but um, but how oh, did yeah. you push through all of that negativity? Do you just ignore it and go right ahead? Um, I'm one of those people that's fueled by spite. <laughs> if you tell me I can't do something or it's not going to work, that just makes me want right. to do it harder. And I have also never been a person, and I know this sounds very self-important, but this is sort of a genuine assessment of my personality that I've had. I, I just, I don't really seek approval, and I'm not really that is interested. That's great, though, as an artist, it's in... great. <laughs> I'm not really interested in other people going, you know what, that's a great idea, and you're right. And maybe that's something to do with ego, but... A lot of what I do is because I really want to do it. I love this kind of comic that tells this kind of story. And I am completely convinced, regardless of what people say, 
that I am not the only one who loves this kind of story. And I'll prove that this this book can, you know, function out there. That the reason it's not in comic shops is because the people supplying and running comic shops don't believe that it has an audience, not because it doesn't have an audience. And the the, the greatest example I have of that is one of the first creator-owned book di- books that I published was called The Less Than Epic Adventures of mm-hmm. TJ and Amal. It was a collected edition, a master edition of a webcomic that was wildly popular. And it was Eisner nominated. It won a Harvey Award. It won a Lambda Award. And when I submitted it to Diamond for distribution, they were like, we can't sell this. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, but oh my and God, it just seems like everything I'm, is like that. Yeah. It's one of those things where I'm like, yeah, yeah. It's like, you don't know what you're, you're talking about, but thanks. Thanks for the confirmation that exactly. you're no good to me. You know, and I, that was sort of, that. that's what spurred my later sort of seeking out of uh, Major League Distribution. It's great. I mean, people do want the books that I make and I knew they did. So it's not like I'm being validated. Oh, it's true. You know, I, I am okay. It's like, yeah, I know. I, I knew, I knew this would happen. I knew these books are good and I know I knew people wanted them. It's just, I had to get around the people that were determined to be right about I no love that. And, but so let's, well, now we let's cycle back because I think now you've got, we can talk oh, about yeah. the, this track record is you were a very early Kickstarter mm-hmm. user, right? You were in practically. Yeah. I, I ran my first project the year it launched and that was 2009. There's a bunch of interesting people who all launched then. It's like you all were pioneers. And also, I don't know. I don't know that there was a risk. You had to put the time into making the campaign and you had to deal with all that, but it wasn't like you were going to lose money. You were losing time by investing it. But the folks at Studio Neat who did the glyph that, uh, iPhone tripod adapter. They're still kicking around this many mm-hmm. years later. They still do Kickstarters. They have a nice small company that has done very well doing industrial products. Uh, I'm trying to, I, I should actually make a list of. I should go back and talk to the, some of the folks. But that sort of first class of Kickstarter people. Yeah. You guys were so willing to you know leap into that void because you this didn't feel like there was anything to lose because there was so many other people saying no in other realms i tried a million things and a whole bunch of things didn't work out you know i i was on an early comic subscription site that cratered you know and my income was pretty much plateauing at around like sort of the 12, 13, 14, 15,000 dollars a year while I was doing the comic and while it's like yes that's actual money and hooray for me you know I I can't hit my 30s you know <laughs> making 12,000 dollars a year or you know it's 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 going to get harder down the road so I needed to figure out how to expand and how to sort of level up my game and Kickstarter was part of that and when I first heard about it like I like I previously said I was like Oh wow, that's just sort of an automation of what I'm already doing. It's not this sounds like a great idea. I'm going to try it out. And it never occurred to me, like, oh, but it might not work. And then what'll you do? Well, if it didn't work, I'd do something else because that had been my career. This didn't work, I'll try something else. You know, trying to get published by established publishers didn't work, I'll try something else. Uh being on a subscription site didn't work, I'll try something else. And Kickstarter, if it hadn't worked, you know, it wouldn't have been the end of my career. It would have been the end of Kickstarter as an option because clearly I didn't know how to properly use it. So was it Porecraft was the first the first one? Yeah. And you raised over 100%. You, you were out for six grand and raised over 13 grand, yeah. which was not, people, you know, no one knew what the scale was going to be, right? Oh. So you had a budget. You figured no, this no. is the much I need to raise to print the books or whatever. Yeah. But so right out of the door, the first... 
campaign you run does over 100% above the goal. Poor Craft was an idea. I had it for years, but as a working artist, I refuse to ask other artists mm-hmm. to work for free. So I, I wouldn't want anyone to take the script I had and just do it on the promise of payment one day like jerks do that I don't I didn't want to do that so when I heard of Kickstarter it was like perfect because I had this project I'd always had on the back burner going oh well maybe one day when I have a spare six or seven thousand dollars I can do it and then it's like oh hey you know maybe I can get it on 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 this site here and when I raised the $13,000 and it's funny you should mention that people like had no idea what kind of scale Kickstarter was working at at that time because when I raised that $13,000 of course I was I was thrilled it was a huge deal to me but a lot of people were very annoyed because they said Kickstarter isn't for projects oh my gosh it's for small well now you're rolling in money Like, you know, now you have so much money. Look at, you know, it's all profit. Like, uh, possibly not. Yeah, 13,000. Yeah, my favorite thing was like, if you are the kind of person who can just ask the internet for $13,000 and get it, you have no business using Kickstarter. You should be taking this project to a real publisher. Isn't that interesting, though? It's like a culture of self-failure that people were sometimes perpetuating. Yeah. That Like, you can't, why would you own a nice thing? Why, why could you do this independent thing that's yeah. nice and great that people want to support directly? That must be bad because creators have been told that. They have to have their projects owned, I mean, especially in your realm. But as a writer, the same thing. You, you know, you can't publish a book by yourself. That's vanity press, and no one's going to buy it, you know? Yeah. So... Uh, to you yeah. one of the thing one of the things that i think about sometimes is there's a there's a rapper named mc front a lot mm-hmm. and he has a song called indier than thou <laughs> <laughs> and it talks about how he is so indie no one knows who he is and no one comes to his game <laughs> and for one terrible moment he was afraid someone recognized him and it's like, no, okay, good. Thank goodness. They, they don't know who I am. Oh my and gosh. then he got like a fan letter and he was terrified. But when he opened it up, it said, you suck. And he was relieved because like, oh, shoot, <laughs> my indie cred is intact. I'm still unsuccessful and anonymous. Oh my gosh. That's such a, oh, wow. Failure sometimes is a mark of success. I'm doing something that's so unpopular because the mainstream can't appreciate it. And it's like, and you, it seems like your attitude, don't leave it words in your mouth, has been a little bit like, hey, I'm just going to be successful. Let's, let's yeah, forget this other part. Yeah, I have absolutely no issue issue with being sort of financially and uh financially and professionally successful and i've never bought into the whole i've never bought into the whole starving artist suffering produces great work thing like i think that's bs i think that's a notion perpetrated by people in suits who want to spend their lives not paying artists what they're worth so they tell artists they're worth far less than they are and artists accept that and consider that their lot as an artist. And I think that's BS. We internalize it too much, too, because I had yeah. a friend who was a pianist and he went to work for a dot com like over 20 years ago and his dot com did well and he made some millions of dollars and mm. his friends were angry with him because oh, yeah. he had he could actually like buy a piano <laughs> and so forth. And it was like he's like, I found out a lot about people. It's like not he didn't, you know, he he didn't feel necessarily guilty, fortunately, about making money from the stock. But it was everybody kind of wanted everyone else to fail at about the same level. Because if you succeeded, someone else succeeded, it meant that your failure was a real failure. It wasn't just what everyone else was doing. I have to say, um, this is when it gets kind of interesting for me because I experienced as I, I didn't have any sort of meteoric rise to success. This has been sort of a slog uphill. Your, your overnight success after 10 years, it's great. <laughs> yeah, my amazing overnight 10-year success. One 
of the things that I, I have found as my profile has gotten higher and the successes have continued to stack up and Iron Circus, oh, it used to be self-publishing my own work and then it was publishing other people and then it was putting out a lot of books a year and now suddenly it's this little company where you know five people are working to get maybe 10 12 books out a year and it's like a real deal publisher with books that are award-winning and critically acclaimed and it's it's running kickstarters that literally always fund and it's a million dollars in rising blah 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 as that has happened two things have happened in its wake which is there are definitely people who stopped talking to me mm. at some point and it's not because we had a falling out or anything. It's just they 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 couldn't handle knowing me after a while. Mm-hmm. And another one is folks who kind of felt this burning need to explain me away as an anomaly <laughs> that was non-repeatable. And when I ran my first smut peddler Kickstarter. I remember folks were like, well, that's all spite money. That's all people funding that just to show solidarity, feminist solidarity. No one really wants that book. And then I ran the second one and then I ran the third one and they sort of made this collective decision to just ignore me because I became this thing that refused to fail and fulfill, (laughs) fulfill something they needed fulfilled. They, They needed the comics industry to be one thing, and my continued presence and success proved it was not that one thing. And as a result, there was sort of this unspoken pact to not acknowledge me. And I I thought that was just wild. Isn't that so interesting? I I go through. I'll, I'll confess my personal weaknesses, um, which I think we all have. But I will confess mine. Oh yeah, mine, for sure. Which is which is I will see somebody who is very much like me, uh, and they are doing you know ten times better than I am. And what I try to do is I try to. This is my personal exercise. I go. I try to if I feel any jealousy or whatever, I try to expose it to myself and analyze it. And I try to feel the joy for them. And I I. You know, I think a fair amount of the time, my first reaction is now joy. I'm like, oh, thank God someone is doing well. That, <laughs> I that know. Should, wait, shouldn't that be our reaction? It's like, oh, thank God Spike has made this work. And one, you know, one reason why I'm talking to you is, is again, you don't have to be, a, no one should put you on a pedestal unless you want to be. And inspiration. But you made this happen and you're an, ex, you're an extraordinary person. You have all this motivation and energy and creativity and obviously, you know, business skills and all that. But that doesn't mean that, it mean, I mean, it means that other people can look at you and say, she made this happen. This is feasible. Maybe I have spike-like capabilities. Um, it's I don't have to be a billion-dollar corporation. I don't have to be, you know, a, a, a white guy in an office wearing a suit kind oh, of yeah. thing. It's like you open up the potential for everybody, and I hope people will look at you and look at what you're doing, and not just enjoy the work and buy the work. <laughs> Please buy mm-hmm. our work, uh, but also, <laughs> but also say, um, you know, we are we have sort of limitless possibilities, and we should appreciate the joy in people having success. But but it's hard when you're not doing well. So you want you want to find things to grab and say, well, this isn't my problem. You know, a spike is whatever. It's like, no, no, it's spike is spike is doing what spikes doing. One of my favorite stories recently, I have a friend who um, a lot of people don't know is my friend and they were at a convention and they were sitting next to somebody and uh, their table neighbor was speaking to a friend and the table neighbor said to their friend, you know, yeah, I want to launch a Kickstarter and I want to, I want to get book one of my book out and this, that, and the other. 
but I'm I'm really nervous about it. And their friend replied, oh, you know, don't don't be nervous. You can do it. And and they replied very sort of saltily back. Yeah, well, my name's not Spike. I can't just put whatever on Kickstarter <laughs> and make $50,000. So. Oh, my God. And it's like, oh wow, okay, okay. But it'd be so easy for them to turn that attitude around inside and say, like, like she has paved the way. She has made this possible for us. She has shown time and time again that she can run you know successful things deliver she has this track record i can follow in those footsteps i mean that's what i hope people take away is that i think a lot of people are because every time i turn around there's a new sort of small publisher that's started by one person you know somewhere and they have they have a mission statement and they know what they want to publish and they know how they're going to publish it they know they're going to sort of get the project together and stick it on kickstarter and they're going to print one book this year and then maybe next year they'll print two and then maybe year after that they'll print three and that's exciting and super cool to me well and this is the thing i think um just to for listeners a little bit too is i've talked about this occasionally is that making certain kinds of creativity are really hard because every time you have to reinvent everything so uh, industrial designers have that terrible time because they they do one product and the next is like totally different and it's not that art is easy it is not (laughs) but it is more like you know how to produce a comic book you know how to write one you know how to you know to draw it you know how to hire letters if you need them you can distribute production you know how to produce an anthology and the printing industry the wonderful part about the printing industry which i've been involved in in some parts since the 80s is it's a like a reproducible commodity thing and you yeah. find a good you, i'm sure you have multiple printers that you love or maybe you found one that's really great and when you say can you print this book they don't go gosh we're gonna have to figure out how to print it's like no no yeah. we've done this before yeah honestly i think that's kind of why comics has embraced Kickstarter so completely. You'll find a lot of very wealthy categories on Kickstarter, like product design and so forth, where it's they have these these five six million dollar projects, these enormous oh, massive projects that are claiming, you know, we're we're here to change the world with our new device that does this amazing thing, and that's great, more power to them. But in comics, if you go to the comics category, ninety nine times out of one hundred, it's people just going, I need to print this book. I like you said, I'm not trying to figure out how to make <laughs> paper from trees. I'm not trying to figure out how to get ink from charcoal and oil. I, I just need to print this book. The process of printing is a done thing. And I have a quote right here that tells me exactly what it'll cost and exactly where it'll be. And I just need this amount of money. And as a result, comic projects are not only more trustworthy than something that's out there trying to do something no one's ever done before, but they're a lot more likely to deliver. And I think that means that sort of the, the comic section of Kickstarter has cultivated this backer base that is really sort of really loyal and excited because they know if they back something, they're going to get something for it. And that's, very reassuring. If I write the check to the printer, I get a book pretty much most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> it usually most happens. Of the time, most yeah. of the time. It's very, occasionally doesn't, but we're not in that kind of economic situation. I want to ask you a few practical things. Go for we're it. talking some great history and theory. So the Daniel Corsetto book, I mentioned that yeah. earlier. That was your biggest Kickstarter to date. Oh, yeah. Uh, 261 grand. The previous one was huge, also 180. Yeah. And you've had this track record of, you know, you go for 30 and you get 50 or 60. Yep. Um, but, the, you know, 260 grand and these books were, the, the Daniel Casado has Girls with Slingshots, for listeners who don't know her work. She's finished that series and is going back and is coloring or working with a colorist to color all her black and white ones. And then she did this massive project to create. It was two volumes, right? And it's, yep. uh, 
What is it? Wait, is it 12 pounds? It is uh, 11 pounds. It's two <laughs> hardcover books in a slipcase. And, and they're beautiful. They're I've seen them in person. Huge. They're huge, right? These are mur- murder books. They you can are. kill somebody with if them. If these fell off a shelf onto your head, you could die without exaggeration. I hope you have a liability statement about please do not place these books above your head. Yeah. But um, so something of this scale, what kind of challenges come when you, uh, I mean, I, I know the the, tar- the goal was, was not modest. It was large. No. But at this came in um, far above that what kind of challenge do you have when you succeed wildly as opposed to kind of being within your, your general parameters i had the good luck to have my first sort of air quotes big kickstarter not be particularly big by modern standards it was mm. big for 2012 but it wasn't it wasn't big for modern day and it was like the very first smut peddler which is a series of erotica anthologies that i put out where the main thing is they're made by women they're sex positive and they're consent driven which are very important to me i believe in erotica erotic comics they're a legitimate genre and they can be artful and beautiful and inspiring and great and fun and that's what smut peddler is and the first smut peddler when i launched that I asked for, I want to say $20,000 and I secretly in my heart hoped for 40 and it ended up making 80. Yay. Yeah. And I remember there was a moment when it ticked over into 80 and I was watching it on Kickstarter and I, I kind of had this voice in the back of my head. It was just like, you're going to die. <laughs> you're gonna die. You you have seriously messed up this time. This is too oh much. You can't handle this. You're going to die. And of course I didn't die. <laughs> But that sort of helped me, that annealed me, that hardened me in the flame or whatever. But um, I I now I'm no longer get that that sort of thrill of terror when a book overfunds. And I one of my favorite things about Danielle's book is I was very busy at the time and I launched it on the road. I launched it in Dulles Airport waiting in line to put my bag on the plane (laughs) from the Kickstarter app. And I launched it and then I put my bag on the plane. I went through security and I got on the plane and I fell asleep. And it was a cross-Atlantic flight. And I landed in Iceland to get on the my connecting flight to uh, Leeds in the UK. And when I woke up and looked at my phone, it had already made $100,000. Oh, my gosh. So oh, however long thing. it takes you to get from where I was at the time, Washington, D.C., to Iceland, <laughs> that's how long it took that Kickstarter to make $100,000. You know, and Danielle has a great fan base. Oh, huge, you know, we all love dedicated, her. Dedicated, awesome. And she is so good to her fans. She's yeah. an educator. She has a big, she has a good, a big audience and whatever. But still, and then, you know, she was shocked. You, yeah. I mean, everyone it was, was shocked. We knew it'd be big. We didn't know it would close out at over a quarter million dollars. Tom Tomorrow, uh, uh, Dan Perkins, who does This Modern World, and yeah. he kind of got talked into doing a collection a few years ago. And he is always, he's a little reluctant about the online stuff, but then when he gets into it, it's good. And I forget what his raised, but it was multiples. And he was so overwhelmed and happy because he knew people supported his work. He knew people liked it. He wasn't thinking yeah. he was unloved. But the scale, and I thought the same thing happened with Danielle. It was the same thing to giant, I have a two volume This Modern World that I could kill somebody with. Yeah. It was people not just want to support the work. They want the thing. Like the thing is so much bigger than well and i'll give someone five dollars to keep them going it's like no no i just paid to buy and have shipped this massive thing to me so it's somehow even more palpable that people would come in because it's such a massive physical oh for sure and i was really glad that happened when it happened because it happened at a time where i had run a whole bunch of kickstarters before i knew what i was doing i had my printers in place i had 
I knew how to handle all the pre-press. I knew where the books were going to be shipped to when they were done. I knew who was going to fulfill the project. So all the pieces were in place. And by the time, you know, that money dropped, it's hard to explain this to people. But when the money actually hits your account, if you're doing it properly, it doesn't feel real to you. So Uh. it's like, oh, it's a number on a screen. And now that that number is in the place I need it to be, I can take numbers smaller numbers from that number and send it to places where it needs to be because like oh that's that's where kickstarters run into trouble when people see the money hit their account and their first thought is this is mine and i've never kind of had that thought with kickstarter money i've never looked at a kickstarter take when it hits my account and gone this is mine kickstarter sends you an email when your money has cleared and it's on the way to the bank and yes. it's like the number that was in the email is just like no this isn't actually a real number though. <laughs> you know none of this is real none of this and is- they love you because they just got their five percent of that exactly that too. <laughs> and you know what i honestly i have i've heard people that are like oh well you know kickstarter gets their pound of flesh it's like well why not <laughs> Oh my God! At well, this they, point, yeah. why not? They've earned it. I do like, and I recommend to people to look at the uh, in the Kickstarter dashboard. I'm always uh, they added this thing to attach tracking codes, and you can make any number of URLs with oh, little tracking codes in them. Yeah. And I do that like crazy, but also they show you the sources when they can. So I can tell that Kickstarter is responsible for often more than ten or fifteen percent. You know, it's from an internal. It's Kickstarter Absolutely. email featured on a projects we love page, whatever. Yeah. So I know they've earned their money because I can see the projects bigger because of them. One of the side effects of Kickstarter that was not sort of their intention, and it's not something I foresaw, certainly, is that they are now sort of a publicity platform in and of themselves. There are a lot of people, and again, everything comes back to comics with me. So, But there are a lot of people who kind of just, they wake up in the morning, they have their coffee, and they just browse the comics section because they mm-hmm. love comics and they're always looking for stuff they haven't heard of before. And there are people who launch their first projects and the next thing you know, like 40% of it is funded from people who were just browsing the comic section and liked the look of them. And that's something that none of us really anticipated, but it's an awesome sort of byproduct of the process. It's amazing when discovery actually works because in so yeah. many areas it doesn't. And Kickstarter is one of the few, because we people are, they know it's going to be interesting and different. It's not going to be the same thing oh, yeah. so they can find something. Speaking of Kickstarter, so you were in the launch group of uh, Drip. It's a uh, yeah. monthly subscription. Yeah. So, so Drip, it gets compared to Patreon, although I... They, they seem like they are allied in some ways, but different in others. And Patreon, Patreon, by the way, I'm shocked and amazed and glad about the hundreds of millions of dollars that they've apparently paid out to the people who are using it for, you know, regular yeah. support for projects. That number floored me when they announced their recent investment uh, wave some months ago. Um, so that's great. So that, that means there's all these creators getting money that we don't know about. Drip is kind of a, I mean, Kickstarter is very different than Patreon because it's project-based. Drip is recurring support. Where where do you see it fit in? How does, how does Drip work for you in what you're doing? I'm using Drip right now as kind of a combination tip jar and sketch blog. It's one of those things where when I draw something, it doesn't really go public anymore. It goes on my drip. So if you like ah. my art, you kind of need to subscribe. And I plan on building it up into something bigger. But for now, it's very much in sort of the testing phase. And part of the reason I've kind of thrown my weight behind it is it's run by the people who made Kickstarter. <laughs> and those people have a track record of listening to the people who use their service and trying to custom fit the platform to the user base and not sort of 
pine for users they don't have mm-hmm. and build a platform for people who aren't there, but the people they prefer to be there, which is quite frankly something that I've read things about Patreon specifically doing. And uh, mm-hmm. I I don't go where, you know, I'm not wanted. I will, I'll never be Chapo Trap House. You know, I'll never make $100,000 a month on on a platform like that. So I I don't want to sort of be something that is quietly suffered because I'm not making six figures monthly for them. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Drip is being run by people I trust and people who want to make something for creatives. And it's run by people like Kickstarter is run by people who their entire sort of their entire reason for existing as a company. If you talk to the founders, they'll tell you they anticipated Kickstarter being something where Girl Scouts would fund their dance recital and fine artists would say, hey, help me build a a giant sheet metal flamingo for the next art fair. Like that's what they thought (laughs) Kickstarter would be. And they were super happy with it. They weren't anticipating like Pebble Watch. (laughs) <laughs> they weren't anticipating any of that stuff. My sign that they're earnest and and remain earnest is that they take 5%. Yeah. That's what they've taken yep. all along. They've worked to reduce the credit card fees over time. So they're actually a bit less than they were yeah. at the start. And they could raise it to six. I mean, look what happened to Etsy. Etsy has turned into yeah. a company from a, a marketplace. And um, because they have shareholders and whatever, Kickstarter, I think, has this commitment. And it's, you know, and it, well, are you sure they're earnest? Like we're 10 years in and they haven't tried to take more money off the table when they very easily could. If they said, well, we need to go to 6%, nobody, or 7%, people go, well, yeah. you know, okay, yeah, I but- guess. No one's going to give them a terrible time, and they haven't. They haven't yeah, tried to they could absolutely window. do that, and they don't. And I've met two of the three founders, and they're awesome people. And I've met a ton of the people who work there, and they're awesome people. They're creatives in their own right. And so it's they they sort of understand this idea of wanting to prosper as a working creator and wanting to make something and sell it to people and then take that money and buy groceries with it. And here's the awesome thing about Kickstarter staff yeah. too, is they will sometimes back they your will. projects and I'll see like, Oh, it's so-and-so I met so-and-so and they come in, they, you know, they try not to be a big deal to, you know, like $5, they come in an ebook for, and I'm like, it is so sweet. It shows so much support when somebody actually in the organization is like, I'm going to support this directly. And I don't think it's policy. I think it's just individual. It's just a choice. thing they do. Yeah. I know Yancey, one of the founders has a copy of Porecraft, you know, I have his t-shirt, which is he did a t-shirt that was basically the final result for the t-shirt. So it says I raised $16,000 on Kickstarter and that's, it's I like a great, that. I have, that's a great teacher let me ask you one final question and i saved this one for last i am fascinated by this i know a lot of people are some listeners may find this dull as dirt but i know how excited you are about it (laughs) Uh it's distribution and we don't talk lengthy about it but i was so excited to see you talking about this in the last year you know you're we're talking early on about comic stores uh, comic book stores and diamond controlling the distribution process the life cycle of a comic book the non-returnability you are now being distributed through a book distributor and i wonder how much of a difference does that make for you in pursuing your publishing empire? Um, the difference it makes is going from three figures in distributed uh, profits in a year to six, one, two, three, four, five, six figures. And yeah, I just had to count. Like, yeah. So from hundreds to hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's in a amazing. Year. That's amazing. So it's an enormous difference. And honestly, it's been a complete sea change. It's been a complete perspective shift. I had no idea what sort of the book distribution model 
actually consisted of. And it's been like a year, a year and a half of figuring that out. And it has been fantastic. And I love every second of it. One of the things that is really important to book distribution in general that, of course, you know, it's important to comics too, but comics has this completely different approach to it. Uh, There's marketing and there is the library scene. Because, you know, of course, Diamond prioritizes to this day what I call the floppy comic, which is the 20 to 35 page uh, staple bound comic that you think of when you think of a comic book that is offered for a month. Mm -hmm. And the problem with trying to sell a graphic novel on Diamond is you submit it and it is offered for a month and then it is gone forever. And maybe you can submit it again, but you have to go through the whole process again. And so it was up to you and it was on your end to keep offering it through their pre- their catalog which is called previews and maybe you know twice a year you would submit it but is it really worth the, the issue because these are the people who are turning down my award-winning eisner nominated <laughs> comics these are the people telling me we can't sell Porecraft, we don't know how when outside any kind of distribution channel i've sold sixteen thousand copies and they're telling me they don't know how to sell it mm-hmm. so you know is it really worth trying to appeal to these people and i decided no it wasn't and one year, a uh, book expo was in Chicago, and I just happened to live, I'd say, like a five, eight-minute taxi ride away from where it was happening. And I registered, and I, I went in, and I had my little tag and everything, and I had, like, I, I'm always going to think of that song, Eye of a Tiger, the whole time I think about my quest for getting a distributor. <laughs> because you have to understand about me, I was... I was a gifted and talented kid. I was an irritating overachiever. I was an (laughs) overpreparer. I was extremely obnoxious and I still am. And I put together little sort of report packets on the status of my business. And it it contained some very personal information, like how much money it made every year Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. how much money I was projected to make this year and how many books we put out. And I had my little stacks and I went into Book Expo America and I approached... I think four or five distributors and every single one didn't let me finish. They're all like, do you have a card? And I was like, Oh yeah, yes. And I thought I was going to like come up against a wall because I was so, I was so used to distributors not caring mm-hmm. that, you know, walking up and going, Hey, I make this many books a year. They're nominated for these awards. I make this much money a year, blah, blah, blah. And there's answers like love to work with you. Here's my card. Oh, yours. oh that's so great. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I had planned out like at least two hours of meetings for this show. I was done in 20 or 30 minutes because everybody took my card and everybody wanted to talk to me after the show. And I decided to go with the distributor that everyone recommended, which was a distributor called Consortium. And it was the right choice in the long run for a lot of reasons, one of which is they are in Minneapolis, which where I live in Chicago, it is a $45 plane ticket to fly to Minneapolis. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. So whenever I need to go up there, it's very easy. And also they distribute a lot of small press comics. They distribute, um, I want to say the publishers rather, uh, 2D Cloud, Koyama Press, Uncivilized Books, No Brow. They're very used to the kind of like, 
we're the weird kids, you know, sitting at the lunch table in oh, high school. And I should point something out to listeners, yeah. because I think if you haven't followed the industry, people think that independent bookstores have totally collapsed. But in fact, no. there are more now than there were 10 years ago. So there's still oh, yeah. thousands of them. And then there's these non-traditional venues that sell books that have risen tremendously, you know, the gift store and, and oh, all yeah. kinds of shops. So your distributor, you know, as I would expect, they have relationships with all kinds of stores. But I think... The, there's been like a as the big box stores have collapsed and Amazon took that over, the rise of the independent store is yeah. a, still an untold story. I see a, no, I shouldn't say that. I see a story from time to time around it, but I think people still have this idea that all the mom and pops went away when in fact there are new no. and bigger stores being oh, opened all sure. the time. Yeah. Consortium knows how to sell the weird kid comics. Mm-hmm. And it really, really shows. And like comparing sort of Diamond, whose attention you had to beg for, to working with Consortium, which, you know, but when I came on, they were in the middle of being purchased by Ingram. So now I'm sort of still in that confusing phase. Like, do I tell people I'm with Consortium or do you tell people I'm with Ingram? It's weird, but whatever. Um, they are very used to selling the kind of books I have. And when I say used to selling, they have sales teams and sales kits and marketing oh. advice. They have questionnaires they say you should give to artists to fill out so you know what kind of marketing to do. Like, for the first time this year, I'm doing things like mailing physical arcs out that have little sort of incentives with them. I'm publishing a book that's about entomophagy, which is insect eating. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's huge, huge field. One of the things that we were doing now is we just mailed out the arcs recently, which were printed by Ingram, you know, for a super low price. And one of the things we included with the mailings is little um, mealworm lollipops. <laughs> you know, that's very book marketing. I wouldn't that's have done great. that last year. But yeah. this year, you know, I'm sort of changing the way I think about things. And I'm attending book shows. I'm attending... Uh, book Expo and American Library Association Annual, and I'm talking to a ton of librarians, and I'm talking to folks trying to put together the Graphics Novel Roundtable for library mecha recommendations, and it's people who are super into books, and people who are super into comics, and are super into getting comics in their libraries, and they're really excited that you're here, and when I tell them the plots of my books, instead of getting... I don't know how to sell that. How do we sell that? They get, oh, do you have a card? Where can I get this? Oh, the, yeah, absolutely. This can. T- you know what? I'm not the youth librarian, but I'm here with the youth librarian. Oh, Let me get yeah. her and get her over here. So it's it's nice to sort of have that energy reflected back at you because for a long time, I was used to putting that energy, that sort of, my books are the best, come read them, rah, rah, rah. I was used to putting that out and having it sort of hit a wall. But when you do that in sort of the book world, there's a response, there's a reply. And like- I, I get so much back for what I put out now, and it's so much more satisfying than anything I previously experienced. And while I still am in Diamond, uh, Diamond Previews, I'm in there because the distributor I'm with now sort of goes, we should submit this to Diamond. And it's like this thing I don't need to deal with. And it's oh, fantastic. Great. And it's just that, that large number thing is it's great to sell 100 books at a time. It's great to sell 1,000 books at a time. But selling mm-hmm. having somebody else handle selling two books to 4,000 stores is yes. also pretty great. You know, Kickstarter is a great way to accumulate a bunch of people in one place to get a bunch of money at once and, and ship all that oh, out. For and, sure. and then this, like the distributor, inverts that. Starting with the distributor would be hard. I mean, you know, you don't necessarily, I know that 
you know, all your books are obviously kickstarted, but there's something about being able to have that unmediated conversation with people and you find all those people first. There's still a huge audience that you can't reach in that mechanism. And the distributor, when it's a good one like this, it just, it's having all your tendrils out there and you're not the person maintaining it. It just seems yeah. like, and then they get a big hunk of it. I realize that's, oh, you know, for sure. yeah. but, but they're getting you into, you know, thousands of locations and that's the, uh, they're putting you in front of everybody. And uh, then as each subsequent title you do comes out, I'm sure that has that multiplication effect. Yeah. One of the things that they told me early on is like the first year it's going to feel like you're like you're like a dog with its head hanging out of a car <laughs> going like 50 miles an hour you're like oh god what is what's going on oh it's going to, ah! like that's going to be your experience and then you're going to sort of find your feet and you're going to figure it out and that's kind of where i am now where like i mentioned earlier um i used to be a one person show and early this year a little maybe near the end of last year I kind of reached this point where, you know, I'd hit critical mass. I yes. literally couldn't do anymore. And it got to the point where I just had to delegate. And now I have an awesome team of freelancers who kind of feel the same way about the books that I do. And they handle the slush pile, which is the incoming submissions, and they handle marketing, and they handle all the pre-press. And it's so nice to have all these people who are super good at what they do, all specializing and going, oh, well, we got this quote from this printer, but I don't believe them. I can knock this down a few more thousand dollars. <laughs> and, you know, and oh, over here going, yeah, hey, this book that you're publishing about uh, insect eating, I, I know somebody who from television and wait till you see, I'm so excited, who can get a pull quote Ooh. for the cover, you know, and it's just it's. Ah, it's very cool. It's it's super exciting. And one of like the cherry on the Sunday, honestly, is that it's an incredibly exciting and vibrant time to be even involved in comics. Because after decades of that slow slope downward, primarily because of a, a mix of Scholastic getting into the mix and manga taking off in America, the comics industry has blown up in the mm -hmm. past decade or so. It's it's doing better, in my opinion, than it's ever done because it's more diverse. It's more active. There are more creators from more different backgrounds telling more different kind of stories. And there's a lot more interest in sort of the book market. One of the perpetual stories that we're hearing from bookstores, both the independent ones you were talking about and like the big chain ones, is they're dedicating more and more and more space to graphic novels. And it's a really, really cool thing to hear. <laughs> And you can see it when you when you walk in the stores too. Uh, yeah, more space is being devoted. Oh, it's awesome! Spike, thank you so much for thank sharing you. your experience. This is fantastic. Thank you for inaugurating the new run of shows funded thank on Kickstarter. You for having of course. me, <laughs> it's such a pleasure, folks. You can find Spike's comics and all of her work at IronCircus.com, and I'll put other notes in the show notes about things we discussed. And uh, we'll be back in uh, the next episode. Thanks for listening. Yay! Thank you for listening to The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. Our website is at Squarespace. We are a production of A Periodical LLC. You can find out more about the podcast at newdisrupt.org and help support us there. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site at newdisrupt.org. Org. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.